I'm going to share something with you guys that I've never shared before in my life. I realized this morning that I haven't even told my wife about this, and uh, which is always dangerous when you're making something public that you haven't shared with your spouse. And but she's not here. She's uh, actually visiting with her mother uh, in North Carolina today. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it's better she doesn't know about. <laughs> about this. I'm going to share um, what is absolutely without question in my mind, the most uncool thing I have ever done. I've done a lot of stuff, and a bunch of it was bad or stupid, but uncool is in a whole different category. And uh, this, this happened in 19, I think it was 77, and um, it is so bad, like I said, I've never talked about it. Uh, I haven't, I, I'm sure that the people who experienced it and watched it unfold have never thought about it again. But even yesterday, as I was remembering what happened, I just wanted to crawl under the table in our house. And I was the only person in the house. It, it's that bad. Um, you guys that are older, how many of you remember Woodstock? Okay, a lot of you don't remember because you were high. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Woodstock, it was like, it was, it was nasty. You know, almost a half million people showed up on a farm and listened to some of the best music in the whole wide world. Uh, music of the 70s is like to die for, and just saying. And um, the... Uh, the world was changing. And, and so out of that uh, came this idea that some believers, some Christ followers had across the country, which was really a cool idea. Let's start these Jesus music festivals. And so I don't know how many there were at first. I, there was uh, Jesus Festival 74, 75, 76, whatever it was on the West Coast. I know there was a big one up in northern Pennsylvania. But one of the biggest and one of the longest running Jesus festivals actually took place about 50 minutes from here in Front Royal, Virginia, called Fishnet Festival. Anybody ever go to Fishnet? Okay, both of you. This is great. Um, it, was, it was big. I mean, it got up to about 25,000, 27,000 people showing up on a farm for a weekend, and it was amazing. Some of the best uh, Christian music acts in the world, top-end kind of stuff that uh, just, you know, you just wanted to, you wanted to be there. You wanted to hear these people. And, and um, as, as it turned out, I ended up being really involved in that festival and was actually the production director for like four or five years. And so I was in charge of everything that happened on the stage. It, it was, it was really a thrill. I, I loved every part of what I was doing. And yeah, you know, I was in charge of all the AV, which was, I can't even believe I did that. Um, in charge of getting all the, the music groups on the stage, making sure everything went fine. Nothing was said or done on the stage that I wasn't, you know, pulling the trigger on. And so I, I just loved the deal. And I have a couple, whoa, there's one right there. This is one of the pictures. Actually, that big sign on the top of the stage, I built that with a couple guys. Um, I didn't do the artwork, but... It, it's still there. I mean, it's still standing. It's the only thing I've ever built that hasn't fallen over. Um, 
Do we have the other crowd shot? Uh, there it is. This is just one sample of one little section of the field uh, that, I mean, the place was slammed. And so I remember it was, this was like the biggest festival that we ever had. Um, like this was about 25,000 people. It was Friday night. It was highlight night. I mean, this is when everything had to go right. And it was, I think, somewhere around 8 o'clock. I remember the sun was coming down, and the place was slammed. And we had a feature artist who was uh, going to be singing. And I had everything was working. Everything was perfect. And 10 minutes before this guy's to go on, my walkie-talkie goes, great, get to the office ASAP. So I quickly went over to the director's office, and they said, hey, something's had happened to the director. He can't be there. You're going to have to bring the guy on. You're going to have to make the announcement and bring the singer on. That was something, I, was, I think I was 21, 22 years old. Uh, that was something that I had never thought about ever doing. Um, standing in front of 25,000 people with a microphone. And I freaked. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I know how to get them on stage, get them off. But the idea of just standing with a microphone in front of that many people was um, overwhelming. So, I didn't have a lot of time to think. I don't even know if I prayed. Um, I had 10 minutes to find out who this guy was. I didn't know him. didn't know him very well at all. Everybody liked him, but it <laughs> tells you a lot about me. Um, so I'm like, okay, so what do I say? And they started telling me all the things he did, and I couldn't find a piece of paper, and I thought that would look stupid, so I start writing on my hand. Won three Grammys, three, you know, two this, Dove Award winner, blah, 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 blah. It was all in my hand. And um, so it, the, the, the atmosphere was electric. I walked out on the stage with a microphone, and people just began screaming and yelling. It was concert fever pitch stuff. And that was kind of cool. That was, that was truly my best moment in this whole story. <laughs> Everything tanked after this. Okay? So I get up there and I'm like, hey, how y'all doing? Ah! You know, and everybody's going crazy. And, and I said, man, you guys are going to love this. We, we've got somebody that's just going to set you on fire. And, and I got the mic and I'm, I got my hand like this. Hey, he's, he's a three-time Grammy Award winner. He's a Dove Award winner. He is, you know, and I go on and on and on. The one thing that I did not put on my hand was his name. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I went like dead blank in my head. And I'm like, would you give it up? Four, and they're all just waiting. And I've got nothing to say. And I looked, and I see people over there. You know, I just walked off the stage. I walked by, and the guy says, I'll tell him my name. Have you ever, have you ever felt 25,000 people laughing at you. I, um, it still brings back bad feelings. It is just a nightmare situation. And people long forgot it. I never got over it. And uh, it really, I mean, I joke about it now, but it was the most humiliating, embarrassing thing. And I, it wasn't like, 
I wanted to go announce this guy. You know, I just got stuck here and really, really blew it. And literally, that mess affected me for a long time. In fact, all the way up until the point we started this church. I mean, it, you know, things just lodge. And being uncool is like the worst, right? I mean, that is like the worst. And it's not, but we think it is. And the whole thing that this fed into was this fear that I want to talk about today, the fear of failure. A fear of failure. Um, there are so many fears. I forget how many thousands of fears we've come up with. But this is one that, um, given where I believe God is taking our church, I think this is one that we want to address. I wrote this down, and, and it's so good that I decided to read it to you because I don't want to mess it up. Uh, I wrote this. I said, here's something I know about you. Inside of every person in this building, something is brooding underneath the surface of our lives. It may not be seen very often, but once in a while it sticks up, sticks up its head and you realize that it's there. This subsurface dweller doesn't emerge often because we tend to push it back down. And for many, the fear in our lives will eventually kill this most important inhabitant. What is it? This mysterious guest is our dream for accomplishment and success. These are the things that we live for, our hopes, the things that we would tackle today if we actually thought we would succeed. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Daniel 11.32, and it says, the people who know their God display strength and take action. But I want to read this out of the Amplified Version, which is, is a very literal interpretation of the Hebrew, and, and it says what needs to be said here today. It says, the people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm, and now listen to this next part, and do exploits for God. Do exploits for God. The people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm and do exploits for God. God has designed us, built us, created us, filled us to do exploits for His kingdom. I'm going to talk about how we get that all twisted up, but before I get there, I want to ask a question. What's holding us back? What stops us from doing exploits for God? And I believe that the biggest reason, or one of the biggest reasons, is we are afraid that we will fail. We're afraid that we're going to mess it up. It could be something from our past, like and for me it was at music festival. Or we like comfort. We just like to be comfortable. If, if we don't push it too much, we can just kind of rest. We don't have any pressure, and, and we like comfort. We don't like risk. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Or uh, some of us feel really inadequate. If I could say one thing to our students here today, you typically are greater risk takers now than at any other time in your life. I would challenge you to never give that up. Never. Never let that go. You don't want to become a person who avoids risk when you're a kingdom person. So, I want to talk about some failure factors. Why do we, why do, we do this? Why do we let this go? 
Number one, write this down in your notes. We don't understand success. We don't understand success. We don't understand that everything in our lives belongs to God. We don't live like that. We, we think it's ours. Hebrews 2.10 says, Everything belongs to God, and all things were created by His power. Now, how do we measure success? How do you do it? What do you say, if you want to talk about a successful life, what would that success look like to you? And I think for, for many of us, we measure it by how much we own, how high we get in our company, how much we accumulate, what accolades we get for doing things in our life, where we live. We live with a success model that thinks that everything is ours. Everything belongs to us. Everything is, is what we do. Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to be successful. We have that driven into us from the time we're little children. We want to be successful. But the picture, I believe, is all wrong. Because if we think that it's about us, we don't understand it. Success in our lives, in our time, in our talent, and our treasure, they are all God's. And when you become a Christ follower... You quit living by the same model that you used to live by, which is about you. I love what Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life book says. The first words out of the book is, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. It's about what he wants to do in our lives. And if you think success is how well you do in this world and how, well you, how much money you accumulate or how successful your business is, you've missed the boat in a huge way. Because you can be really successful in terms of this world and be a total failure in the kingdom of God. We don't want that. It's a, it's a failure factor. And, you know, I, I teach this all the time. There are three things that God wants from us. He wants our time. We need to give Him time. He wants our talent. He's gifted us. He wants us to use those gifts in His kingdom. And the treasure, the money that He's given us, all belongs to Him. It's all His. You live any other way, you're not doing what Jesus has taught us to do with our lives. I, I think that... Well, I'll, I'll come back to that. Number two. We hide behind baggage. We've got baggage. All of us, all of us have baggage, right? We hide behind baggage. There's a great story in the Old Testament about uh, when Israel wanted their first king. And if you read the the whole thing. God didn't want them to have a king, but they just wanted one. He, he wanted them to have a theocracy where their, their nation was led by the priests and the prophets, but they wanted, they wanted to be like all the other kingdoms and have some big guy in charge. And so the first king that was anointed to be the king of Israel was a man by the name of Saul, King Saul. King Saul was basically a donkey rancher. And, and goats. That's what he did. That, that was where he came from. Uh, one of the things about him was he was really big, really tall, really handsome. And, and so, <clears throat> you know, it was like one of those popular boats. But what they got was a donkey rancher for a king. And so when it was named that on coronation day, he was going to be anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the first king of Israel, it was a big deal, except there were some people who knew Saul people he grew up with. And they were giving him a hard time. It, they started to make fun of him. How could, how could you be the king? You know, hey, oh, anybody can be the king. If you could be the king, it's kind of a joke. And 
And he began to think, I am a joke. Well, it's coronation time. You know, the parade started, and they can't find the king. And so Samuel prayed to God. God, where's our king? <laughs> He's not here. And it says, they asked the Lord, where is he? And the Lord replied, He's hiding among the baggage. Now, I know it's a play on words, but my question would be, if you're not doing what God's called you to do, if you're, if you're not dreaming, if you're not putting yourself out there, not willing to take the risk, perhaps it's some baggage that you're hiding behind. Maybe it's some of your history. Maybe it's something that's happened to you. Maybe it's you, you, you feel inadequate. What is the baggage? It's, it's a failure factor. Number three, we tend to focus on our weakness, not God's strength. We tend to focus on our weakness, not God's strength. If we could learn this, uh, this would be life-changing right here. We, <clears throat> we always want to bring our best, don't we? We want to we we give things our, our best game. And I, you know, we do talk a lot around, uh, around uh, discovering purpose and knowing what your gifts are and how your talents and all those things weigh into your ministry. And, but while we all have gifts, uh, I think we probably have a lot more weaknesses, a lot of places where we're not gifted. And um, we tend to focus on those. And um, I don't think that's always a bad thing. I think it's a knowledge thing. Because your gifts are what God has given you to do the things that will help the body of Christ. Your weaknesses, in my, in my belief system and from everything I can tell, your weaknesses is where the extraordinary can happen. The out of the usual. There's this passage of Scripture that we need to understand. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is all you need. Now listen to this. My power works best in weakness. My power works best in weakness. I remember when we started Destiny Church. And honestly, I had this desire and dream to start a church. Um, the one thing, and it could have been from Fishnet Festival, I don't know. The one thing that really concerned me the most and was the most problematic for me was actually getting up in front of people and speaking. Now, you know, some of you think, well, man, he just always wants to do that. Frankly, I don't. Um, I, you know, I, I honor it, and I know that God has given me this to do, but um, and especially in the early days, it was really hard. I had what I call Dave Butts syndrome. I don't know if you guys remember Dave Butts played for the Redskins, and um, massive uh, defensive lineman, just massive guy. And, and Dave and I became friends, and uh, and. Some of you know about this. It wasn't a rumor. It was the truth. But every day before a game, the day of the game, he would go out to the side, you know, sit along the sidelines with a barf bag. And he would be so upset about the game before it ever started. I mean, just so upset and so, so ratcheted up. And, and, and just, it, was, it affected him so much that he threw up in this bag almost every game before it started. That was kind of a syndrome I had every Sunday before I got up to speak. I didn't, go, I didn't have a barf bag, but 
I was physically ill. Every week, it was just like, oh, my stomach's a mess, my head's a mess, and, and, and it was just so hard because I knew that this wasn't one of my strengths. I didn't feel like it was a gift. I just needed to do it. I needed to, to be honoring God. And, and so I always, you know, it was just tough. I remember that this, is, this was, it, it's funny, but it was, almost killed me. Um, our very first communion service. We, you know, we'd never had communion as a whole church until like three or four months into the church. And there was this guy that, that I got to help me put together the communion and everything. And he had this good idea about, let's get these little loaves of bread and just put them in different places around the, the auditorium. And people could just come up and break off a piece of the bread. And, and then they had one that they put together right beside of my, my lectern. And it had a whole loaf of bread just for me. And and a cup of grape juice. And so while I'm, you know, I, I realized sometime like a week before this that I had never led a communion service. I had never said the words and got the people involved. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know where the scriptures were, you know? So I had to go digging around and figure out how to do this. And so I've been, you know, I was practicing and thinking, how am I going to do this? So the, the day comes and you know, the places are all there, and the people, it worked out so beautiful. People were going, getting pieces of the bread and a cup of juice. And so I get up, and I take the loaf of bread in my hands, and I, I um, you know, talk about uh, Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, and they took it and eat, ate it. And I took a piece of the bread and put it in my mouth, and it was too big. And the more I chewed, the bigger it got. And it got really big. It was like it didn't have any leaven until you put it in your mouth, and all of a sudden it just, you know, does this. And this is the symbol of Jesus. And I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm chewing. And I got the wireless mic on, and you can hear like body functions going on. <laughs> As the communion is there, and I, I try to swallow, and you know, and, and things were happening, and you know, I'm trying to push Jesus down, and and Jesus keeps coming back. That's what he does, and I'm like, oh, you know, and so finally I reached over and I grabbed the big cup and I just, you know, saved by the blood. That's the only thing I can think of. I, I was like dying up there. It just, I couldn't, I couldn't seem to do anything right. It was, and I'm like, I can't be a pastor. I'm going to die just trying. We, we do. We focus on our weaknesses. Um, number four, we exaggerate the giants. Um, the Israelites were getting ready to close on their biggest real estate deal ever, and uh, Moses and the Israelites were in the wilderness. They sent 12 spies to go spy out the land. Ten of them came back with a really bad report. They'd run into some giants. And here's, here's what they said. And oh man, what a powerful verse. Numbers 13, 33 says, There we saw the giants. I, I want you to think about this. There are giants everywhere. There are giants in our lives, giants in front of giants that want to stop us, giants that get in the way. We saw them. And it says, I want you to understand the psychology of what these guys said. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. We seem really small to us. And so, 
we were in their sight. You see what happened there? It wasn't that they were too small. It wasn't that they couldn't deal with it. It was how they looked at themselves. And how they looked at themselves then got portrayed to the giants. There are times when we will take things that God wants to do in our lives and we look at it and we say, oh my gosh, I'm too small for this. And we live in that place and nothing good happens after that. There's, um, <laughs> I just heard this recently and I, I love this idea. Um, there are wow people and there are how people. Um, wow people, that, that's like me. Um, I, I always look at something and I say, wow, that would be fun. But then there are how people who say, how would you do that? How are you going to pay for that? How's that going to happen? I'm trying to wow, and they're howling me to death. And I can't, it just messes me up really bad. And I would say this just as, uh, just as caution. For how people, not, you're a gift. I mean, you're actually, the people will actually get it done. It, it's the wow people that you're like, whoa, where'd he come up with that? But don't howl for a little while. Give us some time to wow. Some of this is free. I, you're not getting charged for any of this. Write that stuff down. Number five, um, we look at past failure. We look at past failure. James 3, verse 2 says, all of us make a lot of mistakes. Failure is not an option. It's a necessity. Let me say that again. Failure is not an option. It, it's a necessity. It has, it's, it's, not only is it going to happen... Sometimes it has to. Because if we can do it on our own, it's not that good. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. I'm going to give you a couple of things here. I want to read a passage of Scripture, though, uh, in this. That's in 2 Samuel 23, verse 20. It talks about a guy. This is a great chapter. In fact, if you, if you can, you ought to read the entire chapter sometime. It's about the 30, I think it was like 34 guys that are written about David's mighty men. And this is after David became king, and David was an incredible warrior himself. So you know the guys that were his mighty men, they were mighty. They, were, they did things that nobody else did, and some of the stuff you read in there is absolutely bizarre. Um, but this, we're going to look at just a couple of verses here of one guy, and um, he was one of the leaders. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. Get that word exploits again. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That is so funny. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. And David put him in charge of his bodyguards. Now obviously this guy is really good at close hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's what he was known for, so he's going to be the bodyguard. Um, we don't know anything else about him. We don't know anything about his dad. We don't know anything about anything other than these couple of verses here. But the one part I want to focus on is this, that he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now, I thought about that. Like, why would you do that? What, what's the reason? And 
we don't know. I, you know, I thought, well, maybe the lion is causing problems in the town. Maybe, you know, there's a movie about that. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's called The Lion, but, but uh, where it's killing people. Or maybe it was killing uh, livestock. My, my supposition is that he just hates cats and that he needed to go do this. But one thing I will tell you is that normal people don't do that. Normal people don't go into a cave on a snowy day and kill a lion. So, my question then is, well, is normal a good goal? Um, we're getting ready to start a series. In fact, today kind of feeds into this new series called Disruption. And I, I just want to show you uh, something that our guys put together for this because I think it's really important. So let's just show that, and then I'll, I'll talk about this. Sixty percent. That's the percentage of people that claim they have no intention of stepping into a church. But why? America's culture is changing, and it's not stopping anytime soon. But the church hasn't been changing with the culture. We're instead clinging to outdated practices. How can we reach not only the 40% that would be willing, but the 60 that say they want nothing to do with us? Disruption. It's not about being changed by the culture, but taking back that position that we held as the change in culture. Our communities are in desperate need of spiritual, social, and financial transformation. And who better to give them that than the one who calls us to reformation? But to be the agents of change, we ourselves need to change. We need to ask ourselves questions like, what is the gospel? Who is my neighbor? What is the measure of success? Only when we know the answers to those questions can we move forward to become the peacemakers in a polarized society that's looking for faith, peace, hope, and love. We need to play to our strengths. We need to tack them to the wind. We need to repurpose the church to redeem the community. We need to embrace disruption. You know, this is the um, this year is the five. How do you even say this? The 500 year anniversary of the Reformation of the Church since Martin Luther nailed the uh, thesis on the Wittenberg door. It's it's it, it's it, that was a big day. And um, 500 years later, I would tell you that the church, uh, especially the church in our country, needs to be reformed. There's something that God wants to do in our church and. And so our next series is all about it. it it's, um, it'll be maybe the most important series that I've ever taught and, um, uh, because of what I believe God wants to do in the church. But where it starts is in us. It starts with us and how we think, how we live, how we, how we look at things. So I want to give you today three fearless principles because I think it's going to play into who we become. And this is going to go quick. Number one, it's this. Playing it safe is risky. I want to just challenge you with that. Playing it safe is risky. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, no one can please God. Now, there are times when we start to believe that faith means a risk-adverse life. We actually spin it on its heels. But there is no such thing as risk-free faith. We, let me, let me tell you, here's something that, that's a mantra. We want to increase personal security and decrease risk. Let me say it again. We want to increase our personal security, and we want to decrease risk. 
When we were young, we had no money, right? So we start into life and we finally got some. We finally have our little nest egg or our house or whatever. And, and so now the goal becomes, let's sit on it. Let's hold it. Let's pray to God it never leaves. And let me tell you how this, how this works. Um, you know, I wrote down this quote a year from now. I'd like to be making more money, increase personal security, and de- decrease risk. You know who talks like that? I'll tell you who talks like that. People, or who thinks like that? People who plan to die. If you could just get enough and hold on to the end, it should be okay. I've watched people who've lived like that, their lives are shortened because they quit risking. They quit doing. They, they don't want to put anything out there. They just want to live in peace and be quiet. I'll tell you who else this is. I'm a businessman, and I study business, and I study what happens, and I've really studied lifespans of business. You know, I, I want to make sure my business has a lifespan. And, and so you've got this starting with nothing thing, everything's total risk, and, and you start to climb, and, and you, get, you know, get some sales, get some things happening. You hit some white water because you know, you're, you're being pushed. This is a five-year mark, typically, when you're going to find out if you survive or not. And then you hit this... This, this top line, this plateau of success. This is dangerous. It's not dangerous to have success. It's what you do next. The person that says, you know, I just want to increase personal security and decrease risk, enter into what's called a treadmill. We don't want to do anything to mess anything up, but it is the first sign of decline in business. It's the first sign of decline in life. It's the first sign of decline in a church. We don't want to mess anything up. We don't want to risk anything. Right before the doors close on life, business, church, whatever. The key is, as we get here on the plateau, God has done that. But somebody who's looking ahead says, ooh, we don't want this. we got to infuse this business, my life, our church, with something that does this. That means we're taking more risk. That means we're not comfortable. That means we're not done. That means that our, our goals need to change. Starting Destiny Church, I, I think about that. You know, what would have happened? I, I, we started with a dozen or so people. And um, I know the Lents and the Hales and the Cravens are, are here. There may be some others here that were with us on those first days. Oh my gosh. Um, we risked. We risked a ton. Um, we not only gave our tithes, we, we made loans. I, Steve Craven, he and I have been to so many meetings where we're like, how in the world are we going to do this? And I, got lo- I got him to make some loans early on before he started teaching financial peace and discovered that that was wrong. And I'm so glad we waited on that class because we needed it, you know? We just took risk. We just did what we had to do. It was amazing. And, and God blessed it. And, and if we had just gone for security, we would have never started this church. We, we could go anywhere and hang out and have life. What will happen to you if you decide to increase personal security and decrease risk? And I guess maybe a bigger question is, what, what happens if you don't? Lion chasers know that playing it safe is risky. Benaiah knew that chasing the lion was risky, but it was nothing compared to living without the risk. 
Jesus talks about it this way in the parable of talents in Matthew 25. The man who had received the one talent came, and the master said, I know, and he said to the master, I know that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See here, here it is, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, oh, this, this is hard. I mean, the guy did what he thought was right. You wicked, lazy servant. You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. At least I would have gotten interest. And he said, take the talent away from that guy. Give it to somebody that's going to do something with it. We don't want that to be our story, do we? We don't want that to be what God says to us when we've lived our life and we got through the thing. We just got by. We, we got security on top of it's just in the wrong place in our lives. We don't want to live that life. Number two, the bigger your God, the smaller your lions. I just made that up and I thought that was cool. <clears throat> I don't even have anything to say about that. Okay, number three, final thing. You have to take the first step. You have to take the first step. Um, the passage out of Matthew, you got it in your notes, you can look at it. it. It's a passage where Peter took the first step out of the boat. Big risk. Um, I don't know what your first step is. Maybe you know. Maybe, maybe God's used some of this today to challenge you. What's, what's the first step for you? For those of you who have just lived your life on your own and it's been your life, I think maybe your first step would be to give your life to Christ. You say, well, I prayed that prayer. I'm not talking about praying a prayer. I'm talking about giving your life to Christ. Where he's not a punch ticket to get you to heaven, but he is your life. 